Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And my name is Jeremy Swingle. And this is episode 52 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 52, we are going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to do one chapter review, which will be uh, Hebrews 14, which is another way of cleverly saying 1 Peter chapter 1. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about questions. We're going to kind of let things kick around uh, initially with some discussion around marked questions from Meet 3 at uh, NSA or NSC, as the winds blow these days. And then kind of to cap things off, if time permits, want to talk a little bit about kind of the first principles of what makes a good question, uh, not just a rule book accurate question, but a but a good quality question, because we're always sort of striving for higher and higher levels of quality in everything that we're doing in quizzing. And of course, we can't really talk about marked questions or question first principles in great depth without inviting a uh, friend of the show, Jeremy Swingle, back to the show. He's been a guest uh, at least once, if not twice. How many how many times have you been on the show now? I think twice before, and I'm honored to be reinvited. Um, I'm glad I didn't alienate everyone last time talking mm-hmm. about the lowest scoring quiz. So, <laughs> oh, speaking of which, that topic actually came up at uh, at the fellowship dinner after meet three. So we were at um, what was it Chick Fil A, and we were talking about something quizzing related, and uh, somebody was asking about positive scoring and so we you know we we talked about it a little bit and i said oh did you hear about the negative scoring and so we talked about that and i couldn't remember what the exact number was but do you remember offhand what the exact numbers were oh i'm afraid not i know it was some number that would give anyone a heart attack so it was like a thousand (laughs) something right yeah it was definitely over or i guess under negative a thousand yeah yeah it was 70 80 or 90 negative points a question so it was Somewhere between one and two thousand, I would think. Yep, indeed. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, jump into First Peter chapter mm-hmm. one. So, uh, Scott, why don't you start us there, and Jeremy, jump in. What do you guys think about this chapter? Well, let's hit the normal stuff here. We've got twenty-five verses. Starts off pretty PNW key at the beginning, but at the end of the day, there's only well, no, seven, eight, nine. There's eleven to twenty-five verses are key within PNW. So this is. Um, good chapter for Kiefer specialists, um, as they'll have a lot from the chapter that they will know. Um, and for those Kiefer specialists, as always, it's a short chapter, only 14 extra verses to memorize if you want to have a whole chapter under your belt. I always had a lot of problem with um, multiple book years. and I, I mean, not a lot of problem, but I definitely knew the latter books of any material way less better than the first book. Um, and some of that definitely has to do with you know the material from early in the year much, much better. Um, but I definitely knew First and Second Peter less well than I knew Hebrews. I knew Second Corinthians less well than I knew First Corinthians. Um, and so I'd be interested if any of you have thoughts on ways to combat that. Um, but looking at the chapter, there's as you're going to find in the, the material this year because it's so short, there are global unique words scattered throughout the chapter. Um, there's going to make themselves into great interrogatives in a lot of the places. So that's nice. This looks to be a pretty key chapter or unique. There's a lot of um, global unique words, chapter unique words, and unique phrases. There are going to be those chapter verse reference questions um, scattered throughout there. I see a do not um, or you do not in verse 8. Um, spoke of what in verse 10 is probably a good one. Um, what grace in verse 13. So they're definitely going to be scattered through throughout, but there's probably going to be fewer of them. And I bet you could look in verses 20 through 25 and find only a few reference questions, which would allow those reference quizzers to be very aggressive on their jumping speed on this chapter. All right, cool. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on in First Peter 1. First of all, we're shifting now in the material to a different book written by a different author and a very different writing style and honestly pretty different topics um, in First Peter as well. So this is a bit of a different year um, because that doesn't happen a lot. Even with Galatians, Ephesians, etc., it's, it's all Paul. Um, so the first thing that jumps out at me uh, though, in particular, when it comes to quiz questions, is there's a lot of multiple answers in First Peter one. Um, I don't know, like I didn't look up ahead of time 
like how many there are <laughs> or in comparison to other chapters. But I know there are lots of blocks of text here with, with multiple answers. So I'm looking at 10 and 11. Um, there's a lot of different ways to write MAs in those verses. Uh, searched how intently and with the greatest care. But you could also start it earlier concerning this salvation, the prophets uh, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched how. And then in the very next verse, you have trying to find out what. Um, the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, when he what, he predicted what. So there's a good six multiple answers or so just in those two verses. Those are going to be good ones to study uh, for the quizzers who like those questions. One of the things yeah, that kind of we jumped... don't want to give out. Oh, sorry, go we ahead. We don't want to give out. We don't want to give out the exact number of multiple answers that we have in the official PNW set. But this chapter is definitely among the the uh, probably about five chapters with the most multiple answers. Yeah, totally. One thing to keep in mind in terms of speed of jumping here, there's a fair number of you globally unique words that seem to be relatively evenly spaced uh, throughout the material, just from a, you know, a visual codification uh, perspective. So I think in terms of jumping, you're not going to, you're going to see kind of an even uh, jump speed, maybe with some exceptions with like one, three, although that's a key verse. So that yeah, that's probably still going to be really fast. Um, so I think you're going to see a mixture of questions here uh, across this chapter. Again, really awesome opportunity to memorize the entire chapter because, you know, 25 verses, it's not a ton of material. The verses are typically fairly short. So if you can memorize the entire chapter, you open yourself up to uh, chapter and chapter verse reference questions. So very important to try to memorize along with references as you're going through the material. Another fun thing in this chapter, First uh, Peter one twelve is, in my opinion, the hardest verse to memorize in this uh, <laughs> in this material. So that's a challenge verse, uh, and it only has one unique word. So uh, for those quizzers who really want to get all the material down, that's one to spend some time on. Yeah, there's a lot of pronouns going on that can be confusing to keep straight. Um, I've got a question for you, Jeremy. I don't want to bring up poor memories, but on verse thirteen, therefore, is a chapter um, unique word. If you were writing the question, therefore, what, what would you set as um, the, the most appropriate answer? Like, would it be what's after that second comma, or would you include everything that um, goes after the therefore? Yeah, good question. Uh, let me read it out loud real quick. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I think as a question writer, I would probably not include the phrase with minds that are alert and fully sober in the answer. Um, but I, it's a bit of a 50-50, a bit of gray area. I would probably just have the answer be the second part of the verse after the comma. I would as well, but I'm very much on the fence on that one. I think it, it <laughs> the answer really is set your hope on and everything thereafter. I think the with clause is supplemental. But I, I'm, I would, I would want to include it only just so that somebody could just start quoting. But they could do it anyway. So I think as a, as a writer, I would probably also leave it out. Yeah, for me, I would, I would agree. I would agree. But it, these kinds of modifying clauses definitely complicate things. There's a lot of different ways to, uh, to skin a cat when it comes to deciding how much content to include in an answer. Um, and in this one, I think either way, I don't think it'd be challengeable as a quizzer. So if I were a quizzer, I would just memorize the verse and be prepared to say all of it. Yeah, totally. I completely yeah. agree with that. I don't think either way you could challenge it. And the nice thing is that if this is asked, like, let's say hypothetically it was a chapter verse reference question, um, it doesn't really matter how the question writer decided to write the answer. It's not going to be confusing for the quizzer. And I always like that when I'm a question writer. I'm like, okay, I could pick either and I'm not going to put some undue burden on the quizzer, even though I definitely would go for the shorter answer um, on this one. Yeah, totally. All right. Any other sort of chapter one thoughts before we move on to, uh, well, I think we, we sort of have a spinoff topic here, ways to reduce the latter book gets less love uh, in memorization problem. But before we go to that, any other kind of thoughts on chapter one? Um, just be aware there's a finish of this. So a new one for you specialists to add to your list. Yeah, an excellent one indeed at that. All right, so with uh, that all said, let's chat a little bit about some strategies about latter book 
uh, not getting quite the memorization love as uh, earlier stuff. For me as a coach, this was particularly pronounced the James and Romans year where, you know, I think relatively speaking, uh, at least for me, I don't know about for you guys, I always found James to be tremendously easier to memorize than Romans. And uh, James is also shorter than Romans. And so, you know, James comes before Romans, in ter- at least in that particular year where when we were memorizing. And so we had... Uh, our, the teams that I, w- I was coaching, we were doing fairly well, uh, not super great, but we were doing relatively well on memorizing James and doing fairly well at the first quiz meet. And then we moved into chapter two, or sorry, uh, not chapter two, book number two, uh, Romans chapter one, and everything just kind of fell apart. Uh, people were really struggling to memorize and it was like all this energy that we had developed around James and kind of the excitement and the cohesiveness of the teams kind of memorizing different parts and working together and doing reasonably well at quiz meets. Uh, our second and our third meets were just painful experiences because we didn't manage that swap over. So did you guys kind of experience the same thing? And what did you guys do to counteract that? I'd say, I mean, one thing that I think helped me was <clears throat> I would always read the full reference, including the book name, even in um, materials where there was just one book. Um, so if ever I was quoting Hebrews thirteen fifteen, I would say Hebrews thirteen fifteen. If I was quoting First Peter 1, 9, 1 Peter 1, 9. And so the whole reference was the tr- mental trigger for me to recall what the verse was. Um, and that definitely helped. And I probably spent as much time on later chapters and books as I did in earlier chapters and books. But it just seemed like they were less clear in my mind. And it could just be that the repetition from, like, you deal with meet one material once, and then you deal with it again for the second meet, and then the second meet's material once. And so by the time you finish the year, you've dealt with meet one material. I'm, I'm using dealt with in a very general sense, but you've dealt with it way more times, regardless of... Um, what your study habits are like. So maybe it's just naturally set up to be that way. But I always tried to mitigate that as much as possible. But I know that, I mean, I jumped on reference questions and I was always hoping it was a Hebrews one and not a, a Peter one. Yeah, I think with this year in particular, um, First Peter is so different from Hebrews. And Second Peter is also pretty different from First Peter. Uh, First Peter was written with the help of a scribe. Peter comments on that at the end of chapter 5. And Second Peter was was apparently not written with the same help because it's a lot more difficult to read. Sentences kind of go on and on and on. Um, so, in my opinion, this this year is kind of like Galatians, Ephesians, where you have some similar content but also a lot of different content, and that makes it very difficult to keep things straight between the Peters this year. So, I didn't have trouble distinguishing between Hebrews and Peter when I quizzed on this, but I definitely got tripped up with First Peter one and Second Peter 1 a lot. Uh, so I think that's something that quizzers will have to really focus on going into this new material. And Scott's comment that you should always quote with the book um, on these years when there's multiple books is, I think, really good advice. But beyond that, beyond just like the confusion of the books, I think um, when it comes to keeping up to date on your studies, that is a very difficult part of, uh, of any quizzer's struggles. And uh, I'm going to give some unhelpful but true advice, which is that you just have to do it. <laughs> like, uh, th- keep keep in mind that a lot of other quizzers around you are going to be not putting the time in uh, toward the end of the year. Um, so if you've been doing your work throughout the year and the earlier stuff in the material is gold, then you don't have to spend as much time reviewing it. You should know Hebrews 1 by this point. You can touch it up a little bit the days before the quiz meet, but other than that, you don't need to worry about Hebrews 1. It's time to buckle down and get First Peter 1 done. And your review effort should mostly be centered on the latter part of Hebrews, which is a little bit um, more recent and not as much in your long-term memory. But other than that, you just got to make a schedule, uh, know when you're going to get certain stuff studied, and follow through on it. Just good old-fashioned discipline. Yep, indeed. There's no substitute for uh, memorization discipline, honestly. Uh, we talk about, you know, different tricks and tips and so forth, and that can kind of add an additional few percent on the end and can make a difference one way or the other. But ultimately, nothing can substitute for the bedrock of quizzing memorization discipline, uh, just doing it every day or at least on whatever schedule you happen to be doing it. All right. Well, with that said, let's uh, move on to some of these marked questions from Meet 3. Uh, so, Scott, you want to kick us off with the first one? 
Yeah, so these first two are basically the same. So from Hebrews 12.1, there's the phrase, the sin that so easily entangles. And we had an interrogative written, what so easily entangles? And I think on the extreme surface, this looks like a perfectly good question. It's valid any way that you, it's valid any way that you slice it. But on the surface, it, it looks like a perfectly good question as well. But when you dig into it, you realize that the phrase is the sin that so easily entangles. And so having the answer to what so easily entangles be simply sin is really overly simplistic. You're kind of splitting up um, a phrase in the middle and kind of separating parts that belong to each other. Um, and similarly in Hebrews 13.5, the phrase is Lip, um, lips that openly profess his name, and the question, what openly professes his name? Lips. Well, it, it is true, like, that's, that's a valid question, but really the phrase, the lips that openly profess his name, is what the phrase is trying to say. And by splitting it apart, um, you're acting like, I don't know, you're kind of, the key part is these are the lips that openly profess his name, but you're asking a question where the only answer is lips, and it's just not the best. So, um, yeah, I mean, why don't you want, do, do either of you want to add something to that? Yeah, uh, as you well know, Scott, uh, I'm on the warpath with these kinds of questions. I really don't like them. Because, um, you know, if, if we're thinking about it grammatically, relative clauses, which is what that word that is doing, it's introducing a relative clause, the whole point is to further specify the noun. So when we say a phrase like the sin that so easily entangles, and then we ask what so easily entangles, we're like asking what the broader category is of this subset. But the word what doesn't really do that. Um, So the question doesn't actually make any sense to me. I think it could be argued to actually be invalid because it doesn't work grammatically at all. Uh, I'm not sure that I would accept that challenge. I I would encourage quizzers to try (laughs) the challenge, but I really don't like these questions because I think they're misleading with the purpose of the text. I look at this as a, I think it is technically valid, but only just barely. But I think the answer is the sin that, which is just an awful, awful answer, right? So like what's so easily, because for me, for me, I, I sort of ignore grammar, which I know, makes Jeremy upset with me. Um, but there's many other things that makes Jeremy <laughs> upset with me. Um, but, but basically I, I ignore the grammar part of it and I just say, okay, the what is just sort of a placeholder for the answer, right? So it's sort of like placeholder so easily entangles. Okay. Okay. Great. So I just need to fill in the, the, the blank, right? Blank so easily entangles, fill in the blank. All right. Well, then the filled in blank part is the send that. Um, and it's just so awkward. It's like it to end on that. You want it to be the sin, right? Or ideally just sin, but you can't, right? You, you have to include the, that. And so for me, it's like, well, I think it is a technically valid question. I wouldn't really accept a challenge on it, but gosh, it's ugly and it, it doesn't flow. And I like, I don't like it for the same reason. I don't like split up multiple answer questions, which I know you guys both like and think I'm wrong on, but someday I will convince you to change your minds as we will to you. Yeah. <laughs> I think the well, what I, openly profess his name is the better example here because when it comes to the sin that so easily entangles, well, all sin does easily entangle. So it doesn't end up being a theologically incorrect question and answer. But with the lips that openly profess his name, not all lips openly profess his name. We're specifying the ones that do in the text. So that's that question in particular, I don't like. But probably said enough sure, about that Sure, but I can squint and, like, say the lips, you know, and it's uh, it's implying a subset. But I, I see what you're saying. Sure. <laughs> and then again, re, you know, this kind of goes into the latter section, which we're jumping ahead on, of, of good versus valid, right? Um, is, an, is it a question invalid if it conforms to the rules, but ultimately leads toward a theologically incorrect conclusion? And I think it's one of those situations where it's like, I guess it's technically valid, but golly, I really don't want to have that in quizzing. So like, to me... I want to go far. This is one example of why I want to go far above valid as a minimum for question quality. Yep, that makes sense. I remember a Great West that PNW hosted. So this was a PNW question, um, and it was who, it was from Hebrews. Who is sexually immoral? From Hebrews twelve sixteen, and the answer is no one. Um, which I guess is 
probably not valid today. But anyway, um, back then it was completely valid. And I had a coach just incensed with me that this was even in the set because it is implying an incorrect thing, you know, from just the question side of it, which I understand. And I think that there are so many both valid and good questions that you shouldn't need to write a valid but bad question. Yeah, I'm sort of seeing it as, like, the questions are valid, but just awful. And question writers and editors should do everything to purge them from their question sets. And the reason why I don't want to just directly call them invalid is because how far are we going to go with that? What if we take the mocking of the soldiers to Jesus on the cross, you know, and we start writing questions on that? Now, out of context, their mocking is theologically incorrect, but it's true to the narrative that the soldiers were, you know, mocking Jesus. And so obviously those are valid questions. Um, You know, like if Satan speaks in the text, he's probably lying, but we should still ask questions (laughs) off of what he says. So I I don't, I don't want to go too far with the whole theologically incorrect when taken out of context and just asked as a question thing. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, I, I and I t- completely agree with that. I think the problem, certainly as a quiz master, you can't consider theology at all. I think I think you just have to go based on what's on the card, and then the the strict you know li- literal interpretation of the rule book uh, in terms of validity. But in question writing, you can take it uh, you know significantly further. So yeah, so but at the same time, if going back to Scott's point. If you have the opportunity to write theologically valid questions that are also technically valid, um, you should have plenty of questions and you wouldn't necessarily need to dive into something that is maybe could be construed as theologically invalid, right? Yeah, definitely. And I, quizzing has this interesting paradox in that because quizzing is not trivia or essay based, it's verbatim based we often are ignoring context for the purposes of just testing the quizzers on the words that are there. Um, so like very, very blindly ignoring all semblances of a context while quizzing in general, because we are encouraging and incentivizing kids to memorize giant parts of the material, they get way more context than they probably get in your average Sunday school or youth group. It's, it's an interesting um, two sides of the coin. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, what's the next one? The next one is an interesting one. So there are two global unique words in Hebrews. One in, let's see here, Hebrews 6.2, rites, R-I-T-E-S, cleansing rites. And one in 12.16, rites, R-I-G-H-T-S, his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And if you choose to write the interrogative question, what rights, or even which rights, um, those would be invalid because... The quizzer cannot figure out which one it is at all. Not that if the quizzer... So there are cases where people argue that because a quizzer can figure out which one it should be, then like if there's a CR and a CRMA in a chapter, then they should actually... um, One of them should just be an MA because the quizzer should know that it's not the CR. And just because a quizzer could figure that out is not grounds for changing the question type in that sense. (laughs) But in this case, uh, the quizzer has no ability to figure out what this is, and it's completely tricky. And so if you're writing them as just that one word, what rights, it would be invalid. But you could write, what rights is the oldest son? Answer being his inheritance. And that's, of course, valid, because there are many questions where if a quizzer jumps at a certain point, it might be identical to 5, 10, 20 other questions, and it's just the penalty you get for jumping at that pace. Um, But if you'd write just the one word question, then um, I think it is invalid. Yeah, there's no specific rule in the rule book about these circumstances, but I think that's a pretty clear, logical way to approach it. You know, if now if there was only one of these words, like the cleansing rites, but the other verse wasn't there, then I think it'd be fine, even if the word sounds like other words in the English language. But specifically because we can only, or specifically because we can ask both of these questions and have them be indistinguishable, I think it's just a logical extension of the rule book to take that approach. If one of the words appeared twice and the other one appeared once, then the one that appears once is probably valid as a sing- as a one-word interrogative, right? I would say it's valid, yeah. I'd be open to changing my mind on that, though, because I haven't even thought of that until just now. <laughs> I haven't heard of that, a circumstance where that happens. 
Give me an example of that, Scott. How, uh, I'm not following what you mean. All right, so let's say cleansing rites is still in our material in Hebrews 6.2, and inheritance rites is in 12.16. But then in Hebrews 12.17, they talk about um, bury, um, not bury, um, rites of the temple or something else. So it's one of those words repeated. So now there's two of them, and um, two occurrences of one of the words and one occurrence of the other one. So um, one of them is a global unique word and the other one is not. Can would you be able to ask that globally unique word, which is a homonym to a non-globally unique word? Would okay, you be able to ask so, the globally unique one? Right. Right. So essentially what you're saying is which rites occurring only once, R-I-T-E-S, occurring only once could become used because if it was rights R-I-G-H-T-S, it would have to be... A, a reference question. And since which rights is not a reference question, the quizzer ought to be able to figure it out. Is that the argument? Yes. Yes. Ooh. I don't know that that's anywhere in the rule book, but I'd have to think about that because I, I, I think, again, we're, we're sort of, we're extending the rule book to say that rights and rights, one of each is not ends up in a non-valid situation, which I think is a very logical, like, I think you have to get there because I don't think it's reasonable. Like, cause otherwise it's just a guess, right? Where, where am I? Right. So, but we are ex- sort of extending the rule book to basically make that case invalid. And so we're essentially extending the extension to get to the other part of saying, well, it is valid because the type makes it valid. So I don't know. I'd have, I, I don't know sure, if I'd go that but- far. I, I just think if in this case where there's one occurrence of each, I would definitely invoke the trick you are misleading, which means it's invalid. Um, yeah. No, but, I, I totally if, agree with that. I complete. I'm I'm hundred percent on board with that. It's the extension of the extension that I'm more like. I kind of want it to be true, but I'm not really sure if we can go there. Well, like in in Hebrews 11, we have P A S S E D past and P A S T past as both chapter unique words. So, writing a one word chapter reference question of each of those um, would probably be considered invalid for the exact same reasoning, tricky or misleading. But if one of them was like, if P A S T occurred five times in the chapter, and I was writing CBRs off those, I would write a CR off the other one. Um, I I would I think you can definitely make the argument that even in that scenario, it is still it. It fulfills the ambiguous or the undefined level of tricky or misleading, right? Um, but I would write them. I th- I'd be fine with it. Yeah, I think I'd write them. And if a quizzer could persuade me with a really excellent challenge that it was tricky or misleading, maybe I would throw it out. But <laughs> that's one of those, uh, the rulebook doesn't really speak to it. So I could see there being different circumstances. Like, let's say that the word rights, R-I-T-E-S, shows up 70 times in the material, and then the word rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, only appears once. Well, in that case, I'm not going to be persuaded by a quizzer who says the question was misleading or tricky. Because if you know the material at all, you should know that rights like cleansing rights, show up 70 times. So, I mean, the quizzers should be able to know if they know Hebrews. So I think, ah, it's gray. And I know that Griffin especially doesn't like gray area stuff, but I'm admitting there's some gray area here. Right. Well, here's kind of the interesting thing. If you noticed, like, um, I don't know, probably the last six or seven episodes in a row, we've basically come to some sort of point of saying, wow, there's a gray area here in the rule book. Yeah, but that's because all we talk about is corner cases. Well, that's true. We're nerds, but still, <laughs> it is interesting. Like, like at some point, I, I want some of these ambiguities to be, uh, you know, filled in. I don't, I don't think so because I think, um, I think the ninety percent of quiz questions don't need to be ruled on using any sort of gray area of the rule book. And the more you want to shove the final 10%, 1%, whatever percent you think it is, into a non-gray area, then the closer you get towards a pure quoting B, which is not fun. Yeah, I mean, true. And that, I, I, I don't want to get there. I don't want to get to a quoting B, absolutely, because I definitely don't want to remove the fun that's part of quizzing. I just want to avoid quizzing pass interference calls. Sure. And that's why... I like that there's ambiguity around context so, so that if a quizzer is like stumbling around a little bit, but then just happens to say like a three word unique phrase from a, a, a different context, I'm not like, Hey, you're out of context. 
You know what I mean? Like the point is you can't go to a different place and come back. You know? Sure. But the problem, the problem that I have is like, I want that to be somehow more explicit because if I'm in your room and you don't count me incorrect, right. Uh, and I have an opportunity, like, like I say that three word phrase and I'm not counted incorrect and I get, get it correct. And okay, great. I, I get the question. Then I go to Jeremy's room and he's like, no, you said a three word, word phrase that puts you out of context. That's the sort of situation I want to avoid where it's like, well, it's past interference with Scott as the ref. I got one call and with Jeremy as the ref, I got a different call. But I would not say that those um, are necessarily identical situations. Um, because the participants are different and I think there are, there's always opportunity for challenge and there are differing levels of quality of challenge and rebuttal. And I think all of those things are inputs that make different situation that make what, what may seem like the same situation quite different. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stumble differently in your room than I'm going to stumble in Jeremy's room. And obviously the, the right answer, the best answer of all is I should study more so that I don't stumble. Right. Um, but let's say hypothetically, I stumble exactly the same way in Scott's room as I stumble in Jeremy's room. The only different, different component between those two situations is the quiz master, which leads us to pass interference, right? Well, we all stumble sure. in many ways, Griffin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so who's to say you're going to stumble the exact same way? Right. I'm just saying hypothetically, <laughs> if I were to stumble exactly the same way in your room as opposed to Scott's and get a different answer, I think that's the thing that, that for me, it's, and again, it's, it's an edge case thing, right? But I don't like the idea of because of circumstances that are beyond a quizzer's control, uh, in the sense of like what room I'm in, uh, I get a different ruling on the same information, uh, provided that ambiguity. Uh, and it's not really ambiguity, uh, cause I guess ambiguity I'm okay with. I think it's the random determination factor, um, the randomness, uh, around it. You know, I provide exactly the same thing, but I did, I get a different answer. Uh, that to me sort of leads to a, the, the non-determinism, uh, that's possible because of, of ambiguity in the rules makes me uncomfortable. I just, I just don't want that to, I don't want that to turn off a quizzer, I guess. And certainly the, I, like, I, you know, I'll say it again. I think the, the correct answer is memorize more, uh, spend more time so that I don't stumble in either room and I get both questions correct. Uh, but, you know, for folks who are on their pathway from their beginning years toward full comprehension of, of the material, I don't want to dissuade them uh, or disillusion them by presenting them with a situation like what I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, yeah, there's there's a, a spectrum here in terms of how objective, how subjective, because you're never going to have a perfectly objective rule set that, that takes out every corner case. I personally really find the challenge protest element of quizzing really fun. And it adds a, a, a dynamic to quizzing that I think is, is fresh and important. Um, and it, it gives quizzers, you know, the coaches of team, or sorry, the captains of teams and now the co-captains, uh, the ability to get some public speaking experience and, and speak up on those corner cases um, or to direct the quiz master's attention to the rule book on a, on a uh, black and white issue, maybe the quiz master doesn't know the rule book well, which I've seen that happen. Um, so I, I really like that aspect of it myself. But <laughs> now I have two thoughts. Um, there was, I think it makes sense to focus efforts on things that have like larger impacts because you can probably try to optimize these small things and maybe get somewhere. But like I remember, there's one year at internationals where. Just the pure reading quality of one quiz master was way better than the other three. And PNW just happened to have half of our prelims in that room um, and benefited because of it. And that was like a massive thing compared to having one quarter of our prelims in each of the rooms. That And it wouldn't have mattered, right, if the rule book was completely objective on like this little ruling thing and this little ruling thing. There was just this massive impact of just pure quiz master reading quality um, that I think you're going to find has a much like orders of magnitude more impact than any um, firming up of the rule book might have. And I know that I would, I would always be frustrated by inconsistency of quiz master rulings between rooms when I was a quizzer. And then once I became 
a quiz master myself and district coordinator and helped out with some CMA rule stuff. The more I like, I wanted to make the rule book almost force quiz masters into the right decision. And I think it is near impossible to do that. And I think it is like, maybe it's too hopeful, but I think it's way more useful to encourage quiz masters to have discussions between themselves about rulings and context and challenges and stuff. Um, and you're going to get a lot more good benefit than trying to write the rule book in such a way. So, um, as to prevent a bad quiz master from making bad rulings, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. I think it, I, I, I absolutely, I think a poor quiz master cannot be helped by a perfect rule book. If a perfect rule book is even possible, which I agree, I don't think it is right. Um, but let's say a more perfect rule book is not going to, is not going to smooth over the difference between a poor quiz master and a good quiz master. Uh, there, it, there's, there's way more to it than that. I just think there are opportunities available that, that could reduce the ambiguity in the, in the existing rule book that would help all good class, all good quiz masters be more consistent with each other. I think that's really sort of where, where, where I'm sitting is I'm less concerned. Actually, not less concerned. What's the way to say it? I don't think the rulebook can make uh, a a poor quiz master better. I think what a better rulebook can do is make two good quiz masters more consistent with each other. Sure. I think that would be a good goal to pursue. Well, so speaking of the rulebook, um, and since we're done with the list of the marked questions, uh, do either of you have the rulebook handy? I figure we, we were wanting to talk a little bit about question quality first principles, like basically what makes a good question, not just a valid question, but we should probably start with what makes a valid question. So do you guys have a, a little quick summary that you can throw out there? I have the rulebook handy, but um, there's no like single definition of... There isn't, but I mean, I'm thinking just off the top of my mind. Yeah, it's within each type, but I mean, like, like, you know, you have to have a keyword within the first five, um, things like that. Well, under interrogative questions, it says questions should not be overly long and should be clear and precise. So not overly long, clear, precise, um, talks about the, the seven permissible interrogatives. Um, those interrogatives have to be in either the beginning or the end, must be worded exactly as it appears in the text and must complain a completed unique word or a two or three word unique phrase in the first five words. Um, and the rule book was written better to say that um, a unique phrase is two or three words, the sequence of which distinguishes them from the rest of the material. I can't remember how it was written before it now, but it didn't have that word sequence, which kind of left it less well-defined. So those are the, Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to point out, the kind of there's a bit of irony in that the words clear and precise are not clear or precise in terms of how I mean like what is when is a question clear or precise the rulebook doesn't specify and I think that's fine I don't think that means it's a poor a poorly written rule um, but I think then it behooves the question writer uh, or editor or answer judge or whoever to think about their questions when they're writing them. Um, not as like, oh, I'm zealously going to attempt to dig out of this text every possible permutation of words that can create an interrogative question, but rather are the like these questions that I'm writing, are they true to the text? Are they saying what the text is saying? Am I just finding random unique phrases just for the sake of it? Because especially these days with searchable material on our computers, we can find crazy unique phrases like then you will what or something like that and it's a valid question but it's not a good question you know we should just do you will what as a reference uh and so i think especially i that that clear and precise thing i want to avoid extremely vague interrogatives um that that don't really get at any any like true comprehension of the material but are just unique phrase mining if that makes sense right how do we define so moving on from the the level of validity to good how do we define good in ways that aren't subject that isn't subjective obviously you know the more confusing a question the poorer the question 
Uh, so we want to be, con- uh, you know, clear. Uh, we want to not have the question be overly long. I don't know exactly what overly long means. Uh, but I mean, in terms of something that we can say objectively, what are some objective things that make questions better than other less good but valid questions? So, sorry, Griffin, I jumped the gun a little bit. <laughs> I already moved to the subjective things with my comments just now. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> sorry, well, go ahead, I, Scott. I, I, I think most of what I would would say would be largely subjective, right? But I, I mean, I think you're trying to write complete thoughts as as questions. You're not trying to artificially chop a sentence or a thought or a phrase in half just for the heck of it. You know, I think a good example of that is the if this then that structure. And a lot of people will just write the if portion as an interrogative in some way, when really it's it's a complete thought together. So just try to write a question that. Um, includes both of them together. Another thing that I think would be more on the objective side is whatever part of the material you're looking at, test it with the best fit as far as um, which question type you choose. So, you know, maybe there's a arcane three-word unique phrase, as Jeremy said, like, then you will. Um, and maybe that will make your interrogative question valid. But if there's a much better reference question that you can write, just do that. Like we're not trying to write every single valid question that we can find. Um, and while I do think it's useful to, to test quizzers on unique phrases, I don't think you need to test them on something like then then you will. I mean, there have been times where I've been writing reference questions and I'll just write, I will be what as a reference question. And then when I go through and check it, because I would write these questions just quickly and then I would go through and check them later. And then I would check it and I'd be like, hey, that's a unique phrase. And then so I would just robotically move it to interrogative. Whereas now I'm like, you know what? I don't, there's no need to write I will be what as an interrogative question. Um, so I think writing complete thoughts as questions and using the, the question type that's the best fit are two criteria I try to hold to. Something that came to my mind um, while Scott was just talking, um, something that really bothers me and I try to keep out of my question writing is throw away words at the beginning of a phrase being included in the question when they don't have anything to do with the question. So the common one being the word for, also words like but or and, if a verse starts with those words. You know, if the text says, um, for, for you are receiving the, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, like in First Peter 1, don't write for you are receiving what, just write you are receiving what. Um, uh, that's a good example. And uh, I think... Another thing, too, is question writers really, really like to get to the unique part of the question quickly. And, of course, that makes sense. We want the quizzer to get it right, not wrong, especially if you know that your questions are going to be asked at the higher levels of competition. Then you don't want to write, blessed are the peacemakers, why? You want to write, peacemakers, for they shall what? Or something like that. Um, because you, you you don't want the quizzer to get it wrong. But that's not actually good question writing habits. You want your questions to reflect the actual text and the kinds of questions that naturally arise out of the text given our rulebook. So that means that you're going to have therefore finish the verses. You are going to have some very difficult questions that aren't key until the fifth word. And that's okay. You don't need to put extra words at the beginning uh, to make it key quicker. The other t- the other uh, time I notice people doing that is if there's like a unique word with the word the before it. So like the blessing of Abraham, let's say blessing is a unique word. So I'll see question writers write blessing of whom instead of the blessing of whom, even though that's clearly a much better way to write it, the article should be included with the word. So I definitely see Mm -hmm. a lot of really rushing to get to that unique word when we should just be thinking, what's the grammar here? What are these phrases saying? What do they mean theologically? Again, I know that we just said we're not going to make a question invalid by theology, but we should be seeking to ask questions that are actually getting at the text. I think the, maybe if you can ask a question with, with less somersaults of the language, so such that the question kind of sounds more like normal human speaking, the better that question generally speaking is going to be. So, you know, like including the article, the, is appropriate to do because it makes the whole thing sound and flow better. It also, I think, going back to something Scott and I talked about ages ago uh, on the podcast, I think it was with, within the first, you know, 10 or something episodes, 
having a variety of speeds of jumping of question is a positive, not, not, not a negative. So the idea of, of saying, well, if I drop the article, I can get to key faster. You end up with a question set that gen- if you do that holistically, you end up with a question set that tends to be, let's say, key on the second or third syllable, which means as a quizzer, I recognize over time I can jump pretty much always on the second or third uh, syllable and I and I'm going to get the question correct let's say it's on on an interrogative so I'm going to time my jumps as precise as I can based on the syllable count rather than being a little bit more careful and having a variance of my jumping speed absolutely yeah I love having both a variance of point of being key for questions and um, I like I like it when, on average, the questions are key later. I think you pair that with a quiz master who reads consistently and fairly deliberately. You allow quizzers the opportunity to jump at very finite um, or specific uh, syllable speeds. And I think that makes for better quizzing. When If a quizzer who can get the same percentage right jumping at 2.25 syllables then quizzers jumping at 2.75 syllables. Well, you want to afford that quizzer the opportunity to actually jump at that point. But if either the questions are on average key too fast or the quiz master reads too fast, that everyone's just jumping at one or one and a half syllables because that's all that's as specific as you can get, then you lose that ability to let quizzers show what they know. So I've got kind of a different um, take on this theme, and I don't think you guys have brought this up on the show before. Something else I noticed that bothers me when I quiz master for consolation rounds or or just when there's a lower level of quizzing is there's a lot of questions that end way earlier than they ought to. So I can't think of a great example, but something that comes to mind as an example is the verse in Hebrews 6, the unchanging nature of his purpose. So instead of writing the question, the unchanging what, we should write the question, the unchanging nature of what. And the reason I I think that is I think it's good to have questions which are easy when the whole question is read and then have quizzers edit the difficulty of the question on the fly by adjusting their their jumping speed. So I don't want to be quiz mastering a consolation round and have all of these questions based off of, you know, these vague, unique words. Maybe a quizzers memorized that verse, but they can't get the question because they just can't pull out the unique word. They're new to quizzing or, or, or whatever. Um, and I would like them to get the questions right on the verses they know. I don't want to have all these vague questions. Um, so that's something that I notice a lot of question writers doing, just cutting the question off much earlier than necessary. That's a really brilliant point. The idea that we we tend to think of questions a lot in terms of, say, international quizzing or district championship level, uh, you know, uh, uh, question or level jumping and so forth. Or say, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, we have our Great West with, uh, you know, a couple other districts that those levels of competition are very exciting and where some of our let's say super nerdiness has a playground to really go places because you know the difference between half a syllable one way or the other actually starts to make some profound differences but your point is really profound in that i uh, we we really should have one question set that works for all contexts whether that is at you know internationals great west or in consolation quizzes or in prelims or what have you or at practices at the church level, uh, the same questions are, are, I think, are the best questions. That's really interesting. I haven't, I have not thought about that, and that could be because I've quizmastered so few consolation, especially consolation B quizzes. But I've definitely witnessed cases where it's an interrogative question, and the answer is simply God, or simply Jesus, or heart, or something easily guessable. And I see a quizzer who I know doesn't know it, doesn't know the material, but be able to take a very high probability guess after the full question has been read. And I don't like that. I want there to be a little bit more meat to that answer. So it's not in essence a freebie to that experienced quizzer who, but who doesn't know material. Yeah. And that's fair. I think there's a balance and I'm certainly not saying, especially since the questions should not be quote unquote overly long. I'm definitely not saying that we should just end every question at the very last word. um, But rather I, I'm just saying we should not make questions artificially short, which I've seen that tendency before in question writers. It should end at a logical point, whatever makes the most sense with the flow of the verse. 
you know. Right. I think I think ultimately we're we're saying if you make it too short, you're targeting, say, the upper, you know, levels of quizzing. If you're making it much longer, you're um targeting lower levels of, of, of quizzing, let's say consolation level quizzing. And in I think the right answer is not to target, but to, you know, go with what Jamie was saying is like, like pull questions based on what's in the material, totally regardless of who, you know, where it's going to be asked, who it's going to be asked to the level of quizzing in the district at that particular time. You're, you're trying to find the best question for the material that's in front of you. And so if you do that, you're going to end up with a variance of material. Some that are answered very quickly, you're going to have, you know, a keyword within, you know, the, you're going to have a keyword as the first word of a question, and it's going to be answerable within one or two syllables. And you're going to have other questions where it's like, it's not really key until the fifth word. And even then it's slightly confusing. And if, you know, you kind of have to get to like the seventh word and then you're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. So if you have that sort of variance in that structure, then it's like, okay, yeah, you might be in a situation in consolations where somebody gets a freebie, but they're not going to get every question as a freebie. They're going to get like one in, I don't know, eight, one in seven as a freebie like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good example could be from first Peter one fourteen. Um, I'm just inventing this on the fly, but when I was editing the questions, I remember seeing multiple cases of like the phrases do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And I would see two questions. One of them is do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in what? And then the next one is do not conform to what? So it's the same information in some in the question and answer, but the question length is very, very different between the two, but maybe there's a happy medium and right. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when? Or something like that, where um, it's a much more manageable length on either side. You're going to let quizzers um, specify their difficulty on their jump speed, but in a, a slower quiz, it is not an overly difficult answer. Yeah, I think for that one, I actually would probably write, do not conform to what, just because that's the most natural way I think it flows. Although I do think the one you just gave was good, Scott. Like, I think that's also a good question there. But the long, super long one you gave, I think that's too long. So I think that's a good test case. Yep. I kind of like one, the question I kind of like the question on 14 is as obedient children do not conform to what. Now I mean that might be a little bit long. I I too would 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 very much just do the do not conform to what. Um but I like kind of adding the as obedient children in there because if I'm in it's sort of a variant question. <coughs> I'm sorry, it's a variant question um in the sense that if I'm in consolation I'm giving you know, a healthy amount of material before asking for the answer, but the answer is still non-trivial, right? It's not just a God or, you know, a Jesus or something. I actually have to, you know, know the verse to be able to answer it. Uh, but because I've got as obedient or is as obedient a two-word key phrase? Yeah, that's a two-word key phrase, but not a particularly obvious two-word key phrase. So it tends to work really well for quick jumping also. This shows how much my thinking is um, shaped by international quizzing, though, because I would totally write this question twice, once starting at as obedient children and once starting at do not conform, because when you're jumping on two syllables, um, different question starts matter, right? Because you're just looking at how fast on average does stuff become key. And so both of those, I think, are very clear ways to start the question. And so I, as a question writer for the district, I would absolutely write both of those. I would too. And and for exactly the same reason, I think both of them are useful questions. And I think if you, if you favor one versus the other and, and you do that systematically across your question set, somebody can maybe a, a, you know, a quizzer who's paying attention can pick that out and know how to more effectively study and be able to say like, okay, don't study for the do not conform, study for the as obedient, because that's where the question is going to start. And I would much rather have both of those in there, because I think both are valid, uh, and both can go to the end of the verse. Not to mention and, uh, the evil desires you had when, when you what, or just ended at the word when. There's another good question in there, too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I won't push to write like every possible iteration, but I, I want them to be good. But I do think that if the question starts in a different place... That's a good feather in its cap for being a good question. And this is only tangentially related, but I've also seen question writers cut off the question 
artificially when it's a leading um, W interrogative. So an example would be Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, and it keeps going. So I, I've seen the interrogative, who is the radiance of God's glory? And to me, I would just write who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. To me, that's the complete thought. I have no reason to artificially stop it after just the first thing. Right. Well, it also means that the answer becomes, uh, you, you have to finish out the question, right? I, I, I think that's incredibly important. Like writing questions in such a way that they actually expose the necessity to recite that part of the question in the material, I think is important. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. But I also would not write who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. I think you could, you could argue that, I mean, it is totally valid to include that whole last bit but to me that's not really part of the question you know so like there's there's a limit to how much you include but i will i definitely on these leading w interrogative questions um i've seen the question be cut off kind of artificially it's very it's sort of the definition of art right i think what you're talking about is something that falls under the overly long quote-unquote you know super vague uh statute but of course then what is overly long i think it's it's almost like you, you have to write questions for a while to feel this sort of spidey sense of what's overly long. That's I've why I think we should write... Oh. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, Scott. I have another idea whenever we're ready to move on from this one. I think we're ready. Yeah, so uh, clarifications of pronouns. You should do them. If you're listening to this and you're a question writer, <laughs> why are you not... I, I mean, like, I know, I just know that there are pronouns you have not clarified and the answers to your questions. And I think... Um, there's there's a reasonable sense of Christian guilt you should feel over that, and you should fix it. Obviously, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but, uh, man, there's so many good uh, clarifications of pronouns that are just ignored by question writers, or I'll see quizzers jump on, you know, believe in what? His word, or whatever. And the word God is in the verse before it, and the quizzer isn't required to say that it's God's word. Uh, now, I mean, I don't think we need to go gung-ho and clarify literally every existing pronoun in the text, but if it's important to the meaning of the question, um, there's no reason to make your question artificially easy. The rulebook has us able to include pronoun clarifications in our questions for a reason. So I think a solid percentage of questions should have them. Um, so I'm always adding, I, I think I probably mark a good 10 to 15 questions each meet to say, add pronoun clarifications to this. So yeah. even in my own question set that I, you know, oversaw the editing of, <laughs> I'm seeing it. So take a look at verse 16. How would you grow, uh, how would you guys write this? This is more the, I guess, the subjective question that might lead to an objective standard. So be holy why, or be holy because why, uh, be holy because I am what? I think be holy why would be a great reference question. Turns out that it would have to be a chapter verse reference. Um, but I think that's a really clear way to write it. Um, I think be holy because what is fine. I don't love it. So I don't, I don't have a need to force this into an interrogative, of, interrogative question if I, would, if I don't feel it flows. Yeah, I'd take the same approach. I would probably want to write be holy in what from verse 15. I think that's a great interrogative. But I wouldn't be chomping at the bit to write be holy because what. Um, there's also I am holy. I am what is probably a reference. But uh, so I would probably want to write that one as well. Yeah. So here's a question. Uh, the interrogative word cannot make something key. So be holy why with the word why probably makes it key uh, to verse uh, 16. But of course, we can't do that, right? Well, we can't change the type because of it, but it's a valid question to write it as a chapter verse reference. Sure, but can I can I write "be holy"? Why as an interrogative? Because by saying "why," uh, I am making it key. Because the other "be holies" can't be wise. Well, yeah, I actually think totally the other one it. can. I think the other one can be a why. It's a bad one, but it could. Which so, other one? So, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. I mean, you could say that the reason for being holy is because he who called you is holy. It's not the the most fitting interrogative, but it doesn't matter be one holy. way or another. It needs to be a reference. Oh, I see. So, be holy, why? Because of the stuff that comes before the comma in verse 15. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's well, not okay, excellent. Pretend, ver 
It's not excellent. Pretend verse 15 didn't exist then. Okay, so we're only talking about Hebrews 12, 14 and 1 Peter 1, 16. We're, we're pretending 1 Peter 1, 15 doesn't exist. Can I say be holy? Why? Because 12, 14 can't be why. The interrogative word itself cannot be a basis for deciding the question type. The answer that the question word implies can change it, like multiple or not. But the sure. interrogative word itself cannot. I, I completely agree, but is there a rule about that? Yeah, there has to be a completed, unique word or two or three word phrase within the first five words of a question. And there's it's not here. And the interrogative does not count as part of that phrase. It's, it's not, not part the of the material. material. Yeah. Okay, cool. I am, I am pleased. Um, oh, I remember what I was going to say earlier. Griffin, you said about how it's kind of an art, and that's why I think it's a great idea for everyone to write questions. It doesn't mean you're going to write amazing questions or terrible questions or questions into a list to study. I think just write questions because then you are engaging with the material in a different way. Um, then you will ask questions about the rule book or definitions or the material itself. And I think all of those are good things. And so just sit down and try to write some questions. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a fantastic way to get deeper into the material and to sort of solidify your knowledge. And it's a great way to get better, sort of enhance your quizzing after you've memorized to take it to that next step. And speaking of uh, asking questions about materials, about questions, about anything related to quizzing or beyond, uh, we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, please email us your questions, comments, concerns, negative doubts, fears, or paranoia to our email address, which is IQ for Inside Quizzing. So it's IQ at CBQZ.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter address is uh, at Inside Quizzing. And of course, we want to thank our special guest, who's very quickly becoming not a special guest, but a regular guest, um, still a special person, uh, Jeremy Swingle. And thank you, Scott. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks for thanks having everyone. me once again. All right, Jeremy, go first. Oh, <laughs> thanks, thanks once again for having me, guys. Always good to talk about this stuff. Thanks, everyone. Happy studying.